Amen. Well, we're glad that the wind blew you in this morning, and we will find out what corner of the earth all our allergies are today or tomorrow, but uh, glad you're here. Now, let me tell you, as we come to the text today, one of uh, 99% of the time when you come and you hear me preach, uh, I preach what we would, if we want to give it labels, text-driven, verse-by-verse expositional preaching. Part of the conviction to do that is when you preach verse by verse, you are forced uh, to preach all of God's Word. Uh, You're forced to preach the parts that make us all feel good and are delightful and resounding, and you're forced to preach really hard, heavy passages. And we come today to what I think is undoubtedly the single most heavy passage in all of the Word of God. So heavy that the world mocks and hates Christianity for it. It's so heavy there are even parts of various churches that will refuse to ever mention the words or come near it. But it is so heavy that in Scripture, no one spoke about it more than Jesus. What I mean by that is just just to be clear, we come now to the point in Revelation where we see final judgment or to use maybe more common terms, where we see eternal hell. And you and I need to understand, in fact, in the New Testament, the word for hell is used 12 times. Eleven of them come from the very mouth of Jesus Christ. And so today as we walk through this, there is no aim to sensationalize on my part. There is uh, no intention either from God or from me in the sermon to 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 use scare tactics, but we are going to look at and walk through verse by verse, word by word, and make sure we understand what is being said and where it intersects and applies to our lives. So having said that, I invite you, turn with me, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, we're going to pick up in verse 7, but let me remind us, Revelation 19, the trump resounds, Jesus descends from heaven, the warrior king, the bridegroom has returned for the bride. He defeats the armies of the Antichrist and false prophet, the ten kings, he defeats their, their army. The armies are killed, the Antichrist and false prophet are taken and thrown into the lake of fire. And and on that note, we turn to Revelation 20, where we see Satan is thrown into the abyss and bound and, and, and sealed for a thousand years. And Jesus steps foot on this earth and reigns for a thousand years with his with his saints, who it says are those who experience the first resurrection. Now that's key for me to remind us all. Those who are in Christ, according to Scripture, experience the first resurrection. There's two resurrections from the dead. Those in Christ experience the first. And those who experience the first, it makes this statement, they will not experience the second death. The second death has no power over them. The implication being that those who experience the second resurrection will be under the power of the second death. So the thousand years are completed, Jesus reigning on this world with his resurrected saints. And then it says this, verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, when their purpose has come to fulfillment, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. 
the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now, here's what it says. Satan can't fight his way out. He, he is uh, just as captive to the sovereign almighty power of God as anyone. He is released. And after the world seeing a thousand years of the perfect and glorious and peaceful reign of the exalted Lord Jesus who has fulfilled every prophecy, Satan is released and he finds in unbelieving mankind so many who still are at rebellion with Christ that not even seeing all of the glory of Jesus reigning on earth tampers their rebellion. Instead, they readily sign up for one more battle. It says the number that Satan finds are more than the number of sand on the seashore. That's a number larger than you and I would be able to quantify. It says they came up on the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, that's Jerusalem. They, they're there, they, they surround, they're ready for battle, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them over like that. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So now the unholy trinity, the parody trinity, is receiving their just dues. And then it says this, John says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them he said and then i saw this great throne great speaking to almighty sovereign power i saw a throne where one with all power sits and it wasn't just almighty in, 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 in power, but it was white. It was righteous, pure, holy. There was no blemish, no defect, perfect. And one sitting on that throne. Now, we've already seen in Revelation, the one who sits on the throne is God himself. As we continue through the passage and see God dispense judgment, we realize more specifically we're, we're seeing Jesus. Jesus who judges the living and the dead, Jesus who is the judge, Jesus sitting on the throne. And it says when almost this picture of the full glory of God is all of a sudden on display, says the heavens and the earth, meaning this universe dissolve, disappears, the language, flee, for they cannot stand before the glory of of God. Now we know this, there's plenty of scriptures that talk about this, this universe, there will come a moment where this universe does see its end. And we know, and in looking forward to the weeks to come, to the next chapter, there will be a new heaven and a new earth that take its place of perfection and beauty. But, but here in this moment, the glory of God is fully unveiled and the present universe flees away into nothingness. No place was found for them. And then he says, I saw this. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books or the scrolls were opened, and another scroll was opened, which is the scroll of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, which were in accordance to their deeds, their actions, their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they, the dead, were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds, their actions, their works. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's what John sees. He sees the great white throne. He sees Jesus in all His glory fully on display, sitting on the throne as judge. The universe fades away, and all of a sudden, He now sees the moment of the second resurrection has come. It says the sea, Hades, death, give up their dead. Now, at minimum, it's just a simple way of saying the place where all those who die outside of Christ go gave back their dead. And the language of giving back is always in the connotation of not just souls being released, but bodily resurrection. That they've come back. Their bodies have rematerialized. Their their souls are back in them. These aren't resurrection bodies like those in Christ have received prior to this. This is a reanimated body. Some have said, well, see refers to those who have died in a, a, a non-natural kind of different way. You know, in, in ancient times, if you died at sea, you didn't get the burial rituals. You were just simply thrown over. Death in Hades, one of those is trying to say a reference for where the soul goes, one where the body goes. We can get specific with it. The simple point is everybody who has died who is not part of the first resurrection. Now, remember, who's in the first resurrection? All the saints of Jesus. All the, all the true Christians in accordance with Scripture, first resurrection. Now you've got everybody else. And remember, there's only, you can only stand in one of two positions. You can either stand in Jesus by His grace through faith, or you can stand in your righteousness. It's only two options. Here, first resurrection. Here, second resurrection. It says that all those not in Christ are given up. The dead are raised. And it says, I saw them standing, great and small. No one is left out, mighty and weak, rich or poor, free or slave, popular or ignored, male or female, young or old, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic status, everybody who died outside of Christ, all are raised bodily, and no one is shown partiality for any reason. This is the second resurrection, and he sees all of these rays. They're now standing before the judge, and he sees something else. Uh, he sees books, or, or literally scrolls, that are open. Now, this language of books, it's throughout Scripture. Daniel speaks of a book that was opened before the Ancient of Days that seemingly records all of human history and God's plans for it. We've seen earlier in Revelation in chapters 4 and 5, there was a a scroll seemingly the same that only the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was worthy to break the seals. And now we see there are scrolls, and on those scrolls are written all of the deeds of every individual who's ever lived. And then it says, I not only saw the scrolls of all the deeds, I saw a scroll of life, a book of life. Elsewhere, we've seen it referred to as the Lamb's book of life here in Revelation. And it's a recording of all the names of those who belong to the Lamb by grace through faith. It said, I saw the books brought out. The time of judgment came. And here's what it said. All the dead, they were judged from the things which were written in the books according to 
to their deeds. Now later on, we already saw it says that all of those whose names, all of those who are now standing before God, before the throne, their names are not found in the book of life and they are thrown into the lake of fire, to the place that originally was prepared for Satan and all of his demons, according to Jesus in the Gospels. Say, well, how, how, but, but what's the basis? Well, he tells us the basis. The basis is their works. Every individual will get their day in court, according to Scripture. Every individual will lay out the best of their righteousness, the best of their righteous works. They will lay it out and present it to the judge. The problem is there are none who are righteous, Romans 3.10, which means Romans 3.23, every human, man, woman, boy, or girl has fallen short of God's standard of glory, Jesus Christ. Which is why Romans 6.23, God tells us the wages, the just, fair, earned income for a life of human righteousness is eternal death. Because according to Isaiah, even on our most righteous day as a human being, our righteousness is like a soiled piece of toilet paper compared to the righteousness of God in whose image we are made and against whom we are born into rebellion. This is the plight. This is what it says. They, the dead are judged according to their works. Those who would say, well, well, I would say I should get into heaven because of all the good I've done. They will have their moment to get before God and say, God, here's all the good I've done, and they will be found unrighteous before God. And they will reap the just due of what they have earned. Judgment is fair. Not only that, or not only are they judged by what's written in the books, but they, uh, the Lamb's book of life is brought out just to ensure, nope, their name, they're not standing in Jesus. They're standing in their own righteousness. It's why their name is not there. Now, by the way, this is a sermon for another time, but those of us whose names are in the Lamb's book of life, who've been saved by grace through faith, we don't face this judgment. There's a different judgment, evaluation of our lives in Christ that's spoken of elsewhere. It's not the great white throne judgment. We're not going through this. It says, though, that those thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death. We would commonly use the term eternal hell. Listen to how Scripture describes it. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of darkness and aloneness, a place of insufferable heat and noxious smell, a place of torment and discomfort for both the body and the soul. And it is a place where what is poured out is absolutely just. And the unbelievers wish to be away from God. It turns out to be their worst nightmare for eternity. So here is the reality, church family. When history comes to its conclusion, 
there's one of two fates. There's a fate for those who are in Christ, who experience the first resurrection, glorified bodies like Jesus. They reign with Christ for the millennium. They're there present for what's to come in the new heaven and new earth where there's no more sin and no more tears and no more sorrow and no more death. That's one fate for those who are in Christ. There's those who have rejected Christ, who have chosen to stand in their own righteousness, and their fate is to reap the just, fair reward of their own righteousness, which Scripture does not sensationalize. The warning here is not to scare. It is simply to report factually and actually that the just do for all of my righteousness as a human being in my own sin nature is in fact eternal death that is experienced in the lake of fire or we might commonly use the term the eternal hell. So what do we do told you it's a heavy passage what do we do how how do we as people respond to this well the reality is there's there's two groups of people that need to respond to this there's those of us in Christ and there's those outside of Christ and here's what we need to understand today whether we are in both groups one we need to understand that man's sentence of judgment is in fact just Realize, right prior to this in, 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 the, in, in Revelation, it speaks of the fact that there will be people. You, you think today, there are people on the world, if only Jesus would just, I mean, you know, bring, bring all of your, 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 your friends and family who don't want to believe in Jesus, and if Jesus would just right now, just right now, right here on this stage, zap me out of here, and boom, Jesus stands exalted in all his glory physically, man, they would just have to believe. Revelation just said there are going to be people who see just that reality, and far from belief, they rebel even more. This is the very same word, the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus tells the rich man's died, and, 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 he, and he's crying out from, uh, from the place of death, from the fires of hell, and he tells Abraham, Abraham, if you would just go show up to my brothers, they would believe. And Abraham said, they have the law and they have the prophets. They have the word of God. And if they will not respond to the word of God, they will actually not respond to anything more. We need to understand, church family, the reality of the belly right before shows man and his sin is in rebellion. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, pastor. I, I'm not, we're not there yet. It's, it's not the millennial, I, I, you know, I, A lot of people today, they they haven't signed up for Satan's army. Listen to what Ephesians says about the state of humankind from the moment of our birth. And this is true for all of us prior to faith in Christ, if in fact you're in Christ. It says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Let me, let me simplify that for you. You were once prior to Christ, because Paul's writing to believers, you were born dead, not alive, dead in your trespass and sins, in your rebellion against God. And out of your, your, your deadness and your slavery to sin, that's how you lived. The action, the thoughts, 
the works, the deeds of your life were out of that deadness to sin, which he says is according to the course of the world and according to the prince of the power of the air, which is another name for Satan. It means that every one of us, when we are born, we are born broken out of relationship with God, dead in our trespasses and sins, and the life that we live, no matter how nice or wicked it's judged by this world's standards, it is lived in accordance with the deception of Satan. So no one can say, well, I didn't sign up for that. We did. We're born. We signed up, dead in our trespasses and sins, and And judgment is based on our actual deeds if we're outside of Christ. This is why, and it's interesting, and I can't answer all the questions you may have from this, but Jesus makes these statements when Nazareth and Capernaum don't believe the signs and wonders he's doing. He says, it would be better for, it it says, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on judgment day than for you, implying that in the eternal sentencing of punishment, there are levels which correspond to a person's actual deeds. Now you're going to go, well, does that mean for some? Hell won't, no, hell, it's the difference of worst of the worst or less of the worst. And I don't mean that goof, you know, trying to, to be funny. But it is to say that There is a just sentence on the basis of works, and we need to understand this about works. Works are not just physical actions. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reveals that works, you're not just guilty of adultery. If you you commit the physical act of adultery, Jesus says you've committed adultery if you have a lustful thought. You're not only guilty of murder if you've actually physically murdered somebody, you're guilty of murder if you entertain thoughts of hatred. When we mean by works that everyone's works are laid out, it's not just their actions, it's their thoughts and their outward actions. That's why Jesus says there is nothing that has been done in secret that will not be made known to all. Whatever is done in dark will be revealed by the light. Not only that, but a person's choice, and I need you to listen very carefully, a person's choice to trust by faith in who Jesus is and what he's done to be reconciled to God, salvation. Will show up on that list of deeds. What do you mean, pastor? Jesus in John chapter six, he's just fed the 5,000. They've sought him the next day. And it's clear they don't understand who Jesus really is. They just want more food from the guy who can give it. And so Jesus tries to challenge them and to help them wake up and see that what they need is not more bread from heaven. What they need is the bread of life, Jesus himself. And they don't like his terms and conditions. And they say, Jesus, what is the work of God that we must do to be saved. And Jesus' answer, this is the work of God that you must do to be saved. Believe faith in the one whom he has sent. So I wanna be clear, nobody is saved by works, but Jesus using ironic language makes it clear 
that our response, whether we choose to trust who Jesus is and what he's done, or whether we choose to trust who we are and what we've done, that's one of your two choices. You only get those two. That that is a defining difference in the deeds that will determine whether we find ourselves in the first resurrection or giving account before the Lord at the second. Our sentence is just, yeah, well, pastor, will good people go to hell? Well, I want to be precise here. Biblically, the answer is no. No good person will go to hell. Because biblically, there is only one who is good, God. Which means there's only been one good person, Jesus. And he's not going to hell. Now, maybe what we mean precisely, Pastor, you're telling me there's people who are nice that will go to hell. Yes. Because niceness is not righteousness. Now, if we're righteous, should we be nice? We should be better than nice. We should be kind. But niceness is not the standard, nor is niceness revealing. All will be fairly judged according to their deeds. Everyone who says, I don't want Jesus. I want to stand on my own. I want my day in court. They will get it. We need to understand and know the just sentence of man. We also need to trust in the righteous character of God's judgment. God here is the judge. He's the one who passes down the sentence. He's right. He's just. His sentence is impartial. It is based on the actual evidence of people's lives. God says, you want your day in court? I will give you your day in court. You want me to put your standard up to the standard? I'll put it up there. It is just, it is impartial. But understand, God's judgment is not irrational or illogical or tyrannical, nor as a believer is it anything embarrassing. God's justice, His wrath, is not some raging maniac just angry and uncontrollable taking a baseball bat to a china shop. God is a just judge. His wrath is a settled disposition of opposition to sin, which is the one thing that produces death, the ultimate enemy. Listen to God's heart. Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33, God's speaking to Ezekiel and he says, As for you, son of man, I've appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. You're going to hear my message and you need to give them the warning. If I say to the wicked man, wicked man, you will die. If you don't turn, you got to tell him. And if you don't tell him, his blood's on your hands. If you tell him and he chooses not to believe, his blood's on his hands. And he says this, Now for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Surely our transgression and our sins are upon us, when we are rotting away in them, how can we survive? Say to them, as I live, how does God live? Eternally. He's never not been alive. He is life. He's always alive. As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn back from his way and live. Turn back, turn back. Understand, church family, Peter 
and answering the criticism of some, well, if your God's really God, why hadn't he come back yet? Because our God is patient. His core desire is not to see his image bearers punished, perish, but to see them come to everlasting life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which is why he hasn't come back yet. Because our God's disposition is not that of a tyrant who is looking forward to the day of judgment when he can fling all the little wicked people into the lake of fire. That's not his disposition. In one sense, yes, it will satisfy the justness of the judge. But in another sense, it grieves the heart of God who has made it abundantly clear that sin leads to death and he would give life to any who would so come. This is the heart of our God. This is why he's patient today. In fact, his judgment is not devoid of love or mercy or grace or patience or revelation. Here's the reality. The one who will sit on the throne and bring judgment, the judge, is the same one who thousands of years prior said, I will come down and I as the judge will take your place and I will drink the very punishment as judge I have the right to give. This is the gospel. Can you imagine with me, church family, for a moment? Uh, we can all think of uh, various um, groups of people, countries, leaders of those countries who have committed egregious genocidal war crimes. Now, could you imagine for a second, take one of the great ones of the last century, a Hitler, a Stalin, a Mao. Could you imagine for a second them being on the stand? Let's, let's put up your works. Let's, no one, no average human is going to argue when, with when the sentence of death penalty comes down for that person. Now, could you imagine if the judge stepped off the throne and said, and I'll take the death penalty on his behalf? That's the day of the gospel we live in, church family. We're not yet to the day of judgment. We're in the day of grace. We're in the day of God's patient. This is the reality. This is the heart of God in, in the very same passage in Ephesians where it tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and that we walk in accordance to the, the path of Satan. It says in the same passage, but God, being rich in mercy, moved with com compassion, seeing those in danger and death and harm's way and gets up to act to, to take care of the problem because of his great love with which he loves us even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works of righteousness so that no man can boast. Oh, church family, realize when we come to a passage like this and we feel and we see the weight and the heaviness of judgment, we understand and know that man's sentence is just. That is the true reality of what our sin deserves. We, we trust that God's 
character is righteous in his judgment for it is who he is. But in doing this as a believer, we ought to marvel if you are in Christ. There ought to be a marvel at the mercy of God expressed on the cross. That Jesus took our place that Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath, which you and I as a mortal would have to bear for all eternity, but the one who is fully God and fully man drank the entirety of the eternal justice of God in six hours on the cross. The night before in the garden, my God, Father, if there be any way for this cup to pass from me, it wasn't the abandonment of his friends. It wasn't the brutality of, of what he would endure being scourged and crucified. It was the drinking of the wrath of God on our behalf. The propitiation, not only for our sin, but for the whole world, the atoning sacrifice that would open up the door for whosoever should come to be made right with God. And Jesus did it for the joy set before him out of love for us. He is worthy. I am not worthy of his gift, but he is good and his gift of salvation is true for whosoever should come. We marvel at this mercy. We delight in his grace. It should stir us, church family, when we hear of the weight of judgment to at minimum pray for God's conviction to fall on the world. Paul prayed for open doors. He prayed for boldness to speak the words of the gospel. Jesus commanded and commissioned us to go. We see the Spirit leading and empowering us. So we must pray, church family, for open doors. We must pray for God to break the hearts, to bring to a place of humility every, every man, woman, boy, and girl we know who does not know him. That God, whatever needs to take place to bring them to a point where their heart would be ready to respond, we must pray that the veil of Satan which lies over the hearts of unbelievers would be rended. We pray, we pray, we pray for people to be God's, to be open, we pray for God's conviction in people's lives. But then we testify, we testify. We testify to the very same grace that we marvel at, the very same grace that we glory in. We testify to the heart of God that today is not the day of judgment, today is the day of God's patience where he delights to seek and save sinners. So hear the gospel message. Come you who are heavy and Weary laden, come you who are broken and dead in trespasses and sins. Come and find the one who took your place. And find wholeness and being reconciled to God. We testify, church family, if we really understand the weight and affirm the reality of God's judgment, then it should light a fire in our heart to make sure every man, woman, boy, and girl hears of God's love today. Lastly, how do we respond? We respond by preparing for the reality of his judgment. Now, I want to be clear as we come to the end. God's judgment is not intended to be a scare tactic, no matter how some preachers may have used it. Nobody in their right mind wants to go to hell. And you can take a room full of susceptible people, whether they are kids, teenagers, or adults, 
and you can scare people towards a decision that they don't have a clue what they're doing. Nobody wants to go to hell. God's honesty about judgment is not meant to be a scare tactic. It is meant to be a reality, a warning. Fear of hell does not drive salvation, but conviction of hell does drive one to salvation. Fear of hell, nobody wants to go to hell. Sure, there's someone who just wants 15 seconds of fame who will say, I'm ready to party it up in hell. But no one really wants to go to hell when they read the description. But not wanting to go to hell is not the same thing as understanding I am a sinner, hell is what I deserve, and Jesus is my only hope because he took my place. That's conviction. Conviction, the piercing reality, the piercing knowledge that yes, in fact, as nice and wonderful as I think I am in and of myself born, I am a sinner in rebellion against God, deceived by the enemy, dead in my trespasses and sins, but praise God that I live today when Jesus has come and taken my place. He has died. He has lived the life I can't. He's died the death I deserve. He has risen from the grave. He has gone before me to prepare a place for me. And if I will just respond to him in repentance and faith, Jesus, you're right, I'm wrong, and I am trusting you and you alone, not me, not my work, not my best days, not my worst days, you and you alone. I'm coming because you said you'd save me. Conviction should drive us. And here's the reality. There will be people, according to Jesus, who right now think they are Christian, who on that day will find themselves before the throne. And they will say, Lord, we did this in your name. We prophesied in your name. We, healed. we did all this stuff for you. And Jesus, with sorrow in his heart, will say, I do not know you. You put your faith in all the things you did for me, going to church, family of origin, having a quiet time, doing this, giving that. Cannot be more clear, church family, because there are theological traditions that would affirm a salvation by works. No amount of doing stuff for Jesus will save any one of us. Only by humble coming in humble repentance to the throne of grace saying, Lord, I can't ever do enough, but you've done enough. You're right. I'm in the wrong. Save me. We will find grace and mercy, salvation in time of need. So we need to understand hell is real. Hell is a place of separation from all but the wrath of God. Hell is a place designed for Satan and the demons. Hell is a place that is eternal. Hell is a prepared place. Hell is inevitable and just if one does not come to faith in Christ. Hell is inescapable once you are there. But understand, church family, hell is avoidable if you will repent and place your faith in Christ. So the question today is there's a choice. Are you in Christ by grace through faith, 
Or are you putting all your faith for your day in court, standing in your own righteousness? Now, I don't know where every one of us are at in this room. I know where I'm at, but I don't know where everyone is at. That's between you and the Lord. In a moment, we'll have a time of response. If God's stirring to some kind of response, respond. If this starts a process, of respond. At minimum, church family, for those of us in Christ, understand. Praise God, we've responded. But may we now go out and live out our mission to a world that desperately needs to know of a God whose grace is so great, he's made a way. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a heavy passage. It's clear. And thank you that you're honest with us. So Jesus, just very simply, if there's any heart in this place or online that does not truly know you, whose, whose name is not written in that book of life, would you just make it clear that their faith is, being, is looking in the wrong direction, whether it be at themselves, whether it be whatever. And Holy Spirit, may they respond to your conviction. There is no greater joy we would have than to see those who do not know you come to know you. Father, for those of us who know you, may we marvel at your mercy. May we glory in your grace. May we pray for your conviction. And Lord, may we, may we go with a, with a fire of love in our hearts to proclaim the wonder of your gospel to this world. Jesus, may you be high and lifted up in this time. May you be praised by our response. It's to you we look, and in your name I pray. Amen.